second passage is going to be in Acts chapter 9, so if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Acts chapter 9. Famous, the famous passage, 1 through 9 in Acts chapter 9. Now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and through his eyes, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. The reading of God's Word. Let's pray for a second. Our Father, we pray that you will help us as we read, as we preach, and as we hear to glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been, uh, a few weeks ago, some of you know we finished the study of the book of Philippians, and I... I think I said then that I would revisit chapter 4 in Philippians uh, with some sermons, especially over the text there in 4.11, in Philippians 4.11. The Apostle Paul, he says this, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And then in verse 12, he says, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. In verse 13, he says, I've learned I can do all things. What One of those things has to be contentment. I have learned to be content in all things in Christ, in Christ who strengthens me. And we had some lively conversation around my table last night about what contentment is. Um, but let me, let me show you what contentment in Jesus Christ looks like. The Apostle Paul tells us he's learned it. He's learned to be content in good times and bad times. In short, he's found this contentment is in Christ who strengthens him. But it's in Christ. And the point we want to make this morning is there was a time when he wasn't in Christ. And he wasn't so content. We'll see that in a minute. But let me, let me try to give you a picture in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12. Instead of turning there, just listen. But we have a graphic picture of what it means to be content in circumstances. He's in all sorts of circumstances that are not good. Maybe even times where there would be tears and sorrows. But he's not been out of shape. He's not, twist, he's not twisting off and angry. He's submitted to the situation and he's content. He's not grieving over the fact that his neighbor has a better situation. Or his neighbor has more money. He's not grieving and envious. He's a person who's learned to be content in Christ. 
And so in verse 8 we read, We are afflicted in every way. Those are His circumstances, but He is not crushed, He says. He's perplexed, but He's not despairing. He's persecuted, but He's not forsaken. These are the circumstances followed by He's telling you, not forsaken. If you go and you look in Acts 16, you'll remember that the Apostle Paul has preached and Silas, they are beaten with rods and they're dragged. There's a, if you go read your book of Acts, you'll see that there's a lot of dragging goes on. People being dragged. Well, these guys are dragged to a prison. They're put into manacles, if you will, connected to the walls of the prison. And it says about midnight, they begin to pray. They begin to sing praises. I'm, I'm just saying to you that there's, there's some difficult... There's some, probably some crying going on. Backs are, are probably bleeding. And here's a man who's singing and praying. And everybody around is listening to what they're singing and praying about. He says, we're struck down but not destroyed. We're always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. These are our circumstances. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Then in 2 Corinthians 6, 5, we, we hear more. He says, in beatings in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in, here's, here's one for you guys, men, sleeplessness. Do y'all have a problem sleeping sometimes? In sleeplessness, in hunger, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making rich, many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Did you hear what he says? Yes, there's sorrow. Yes, there's times of being poor and having nothing, but he is seeing the riches in the midst of not having anything. He sees that he possesses all things in the midst of having nothing. This is a portrait of what it means to be content. And eventually, I want to go there. I want to go there. I want to have a sermon on what it means to be content. But let me just give you a few pictures from some of the Puritans about what it means to be content. There's this picture of Paul being a great tree. Deep roots, winds blowing. I don't know if you've ever been to Rockport and you've ever seen the trees down there at Rockport. The trees are bent over because the wind's blowing so hard off the ocean. And the the trees are literally, it looks like somebody combed them to the side. But they didn't come out of the ground because they have roots deep into the turf, deep into the earth. And so even though there's all this blowing that's going on, all the circumstances, the tree's still in the same place. And that's what Paul is like. Paul says, I'm content. He's like a pocket watch or like a wristwatch. I don't know about you. Uh, I had to learn not to do what I'm about to say. But I I wore a watch (laughs) when I first got married to my wife. My wife made me take my watch off because I'd been wearing it for... I was a a single man until I was 30. And I wore that watch probably three years. The only time I took it off was when the watch band broke. And then I got into this habit when I would be walking... For some reason, it seemed like I, that watch face could find every doorknob. And I would crush the door, the, the watch face. And I'd take it in and they'd fix the watch face. The internal parts of the watch are totally fine. That's what it means to be content. I'm, I may be going through some, boom, I may be going through some difficulties. But the internal part of me is, okay, Paul says, I have learned that. I've learned to be this tree. I've learned to be this watch that's just being hit and banged around. But I'm content. I've learned it. But see, what I want to show you today is that if he had to learn to be content, there was a time when he wasn't content. 
There was a time when he wasn't in Christ. In Christ, there's contentment. Out of Christ, there's not contentment. In Christ, there's contentment. If you're not in Christ, what are you, folks? You're not content. You're discontent. And our children's catechism says, what is the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment is thou shalt not covet. What does it teach us? It teaches us to be content with our lot. If you're not obeying the Tenth Commandment, you are coveting. Coveting is another word for discontent. What is the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul's backstory? This is what we started talking about last week. Where might we find covetousness or discontentment in his life before Jesus Christ? Now, this is what Herman Bovink, you know how God works. He helps us as we're reading to find things for our sermons as we're reading along. And this is what Herman Bovink says about God's work in our life. Not a single person, even if one had been snatched like a piece of kindling from the fire, has ever spoken of coercion in connection with the work of God's grace. It would likely have been their wish that God had more forcefully broken sin in them and made them partakers of salvation and blessedness without their having to travel such a long road of struggle and grief. But that is not how God works In grace, according to grace, all coercion as to its essence is not there. All coercion is alien to God's grace. So Bovink is agreeing with our thesis. Bovink is saying, no zapping into the kingdom. He's saying you don't just have a person who begins walking with Jesus Christ the next day when he was just, didn't know anything about Christ beforehand. Everybody has a backstory. Everybody. We might wish, we might wish if we were a piece of fire, I mean a piece of wood in a fire, we might wish that God came along and snatched us out earlier. But that's not how God works. We would wish for it. As we look back, we would all look back and we would say, you know, I, did, I, could have, I should have come to Christ then. We can all look back and we can say, God was working on me then and I resisted Him. There's all these things that have been going on. And Bovink is saying, yes, there's all these things going on and God doesn't zap anybody into the kingdom because He doesn't coerce us. He uses all these little things. He uses moms. He uses ministers. He uses friends. He uses all these people to bring us through stressful times and trials. He doesn't remove the struggle and the grief. We might wish that He did. Don't you wish, don't you wish, oh Lord, I wish I didn't, I wish I would have been saved there and not here. That's what we do as we look back. In our backstory, we look back and we think, oh, I, I, how many sermons did I listen to? How many times do I know, Augustine says, for nine years he knew his mother was praying for him, puddles of tears for him to come to Christ. For nine years he's taught, he knows it. He knows what she's doing and he still resists Christ. And yet God, He works powerfully and imperceptibly to bring us to Himself. We all look back. And then, just like as we come to Christ, just like a baby's born, the mom, uh, things come along and mom says, I'm having a baby. It's not her choice. We come along. God's Spirit brings us into the kingdom, opens up our hearts, and we receive Christ. Now this morning, what I don't want to do is I don't want to share a sermon on learning contentment, but I want to show you, Saul, what he was doing before he calls on the name of the Lord at the end of chapter 9. 
just like the rest of us, he has to be brought out of sin and into Christ. That's just like the rest of us. Don't think, and I told you last week, don't think Saul is zapped into the kingdom. Not happen. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. He's cut to the quick just like all the rest of us. And if you go back and you look at the Timothy part of the sermon last week, and you think Timothy wasn't cut to the quick, I promise you he was. I promise you he had to repent of sin as a, as a young man. I promise you he did. Even if that's your testimony. Why do I believe that the Apostle Paul is covetous? Well, I want to read to you Romans 7. Romans 7, this is what he says. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. Now, Paul is a Pharisee. He knows all about coveting. But then the law came alive. Something cut him to the quick. All of a sudden he understands he is a covetous person. He all of a sudden understands he's discontent. And so when you read Acts chapter 9, you don't think of covetousness, do you? Do you think of about a man who's walking around cut to the quick? Do you walk around thinking about a man who uh, is dealing with his own sin? No, you just see a guy falling on his face in front of Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to show you what he's thinking before this chapter 9 takes place. I want to show you Saul's covetousness. Saul and his covetousness can only be discovered. Now, this is where everything gets really textured. I wouldn't wish this study on you for anything, but I just pray you pay attention. This all can be understood by reading your Bible. And you have to read Acts 6, 7, 8, and 9 to get this. And then you get to chapter 9 and you, you see that Luke is going to show you Acts chapter 9, Paul front and center. But then later on in chapter 22, Paul again front and center with a few extra facts that, didn't, that were not told to us in Acts 9. Same thing in Acts 26. A few more interesting, juicy tidbits come along the way. And also, as we just read in Romans 7, we see a piece of this evidence that something's going on in him immediately prior to Acts chapter 9. What is it that, is, that Saul is coveting? That's the question. What is he discontent about? Why is he so mad Look at verse 1, chapter 9. Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Still, still breathing threats. Something is going on even from chapter 8. Something's been happening even in chapter maybe 7 where all this thing starts starting up. And so in chapter 22, we see this explained a little bit more in verse 3. The apostle informs us himself that he was strictly trained by Gamaliel. This is chapter 22, verse 3, explaining chapter 9. He says, I was educated by one of the best teachers in all Israel. By the, maybe the the guy who's around right now, the new Nicodemus. Before Nicodemus came to Christ. This is the Nicodemus. I have been educated by Gamaliel. Verse 14 
uh, chapter 1 of Galatians. I was advancing in Judaism far beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. He was raised by a Pharisee. His mom and dad were Pharisees. They lived in Cilicia. He was fully given allegiance to the interpretation of the Bible of his day. And if he heard anybody speaking contrary to his interpretation, watch out. He was going to get a little bit angry. Not only verse do we see that he's strictly trained, but in verse 3 of chapter 22, he says he was a zealot. Verse 3, being zealous for God. He was zealous for his ancestral traditions. And you and I, we studied in Philippians chapter 3. Remember, he put all his confidence in all his uh, advantages, his nation, his training, all his achievements. He is opposed to anybody who threatens the holiness of God. He's opposed to anybody who threatens the people of God in his mind. He is Phineas. If you want to read in Numbers 25, read about a guy who's holy and full of zeal. Go look at Phineas because Phineas takes a spear and kills two people who were doing some things they shouldn't have been doing in the presence of God. This is Paul. He is full of zeal. And then you go back to chapter chapter 9 and Luke informs us that Saul is opposing Jesus Christ and his followers. How could he believe? How could Saul of Tarsus believe that anybody who spoke against the temple and anybody who spoke against the Bible, the Torah, could be the Messiah? This Jesus, this Messiah is condemned by his own people. How can he be the Messiah? Deuteronomy 21-23 says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, he looked at Jesus and he said, This guy is getting exactly what he deserves. He's Nobody. We would never get this so wrong. (laughs) Have you ever said that to yourself? We would never get this so wrong. Oh, I've been there, friends. Mm. We would never get this so wrong. This guy's dying exactly what he's getting, exactly what he deserved. And later on, Paul says, you know what? He realized Jesus was getting what we deserved. Suffice it to say, we've got a Saul of Tarsus. He's a one man, strict, strictly trained, full of zeal. He's for the holiness of God and he's on the war path against God's enemies. So we know all of this. So I've been asking myself this question for years. Was Saul such a holy terror as we find him in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9 before chapter 8? And I think the answer is no, he wasn't quite this holy of a terror. In Acts chapter 8, if you go back and read it, it says he's ravaging the church. One of the things that really gets me as as a man in this time is he's taking women out of the church and and dragging them along. It's one thing for a man to drag another man around. It does kind of bother me about dragging a woman somewhere. And then you get to chapter 9, and it says that he's breathing threats and murder against Christ. This is the air that he breathes. But earlier in chapter 6 and 7, he's standing there at the end of chapter 7, and he's giving hearty approval to the stoning of Stephen. He's a coat watcher. What happened? What causes him to spike? You know, we have graphs. What causes the spike? What causes this escalation in, in chapter from chapter 7 to chapter 8? He moves from dr- a dramatic change. 
He's full of rage. He's dragging women around. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus confronts him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm getting closer to the answer. But also in Acts 26, as he's explaining Acts chapter 9, with a little extra information, he says this in 26, 14. Jesus says this, he says, Jesus said to me, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. What's pricking him? When an animal was hitched to a cart back in those days, there were pricks, there were goads behind them. And if the animal started veering to the left or to the right, those pricks would stick them in the hind quarter and make them go straight. And Jesus is going, Saul of Tarsus, isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads and be bludgeoned and bleeding? Isn't it hard? What is it that is goading him? Well, I'm telling you, I think it's being covetous. I think that when the 10th commandment came alive, that's what we're talking about here. I think that this is what causes him to see that he's dead and trespasses and sins. I think that what is happening here is that he sees the law of God for the first time and it says, do this, do this, do this, and he realizes he can't do it. And he's covetous. I believe the answer is found if we pay close attention to the Luke uh, narratives weaving Stephen and Saul together in Acts 6, 7, and 8. Let me give you a picture. In chapter 6, we studied this months ago. We were talking about deacons and elders and so forth. And we said that, you know, remember Stephen? Remember there's a problem about feeding the women, the, the widows in the church. And they're going to solve this. The apostles say, go choose seven men, pick seven men to be deacons. And they have to have this kind of character and so forth. And so they choose seven. And the first one that, that Luke puts in front of us, I think on purpose, he puts Stephen in front of us. And he says, Stephen, number one, and he says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen, full of power and grace. Stephen is a man who is doing marvelous things, even miracles in front of people. And he is able to argue in ways that nobody can be victorious over him. And then one more thing. Really good, though. All through the time that he speaks to these folks, he has the face of an angel. Something about Stephen. I want you to have a picture of Stephen there. So then an argument begins between Stephen and the men who are in the synagogue of the freedmen. And the apostle Paul Saul was part of that group. His name is not there, but he's part of that group. He's from Cilicia. And so they argue with Stephen, full of grace, full of power, full of strength, able to argue and defeat people with his arguments, and he is beating the snot out of them. And so what do you do when you lose the argument, folks? We see it. It's amazing. I don't even have to go read books on this. Just watch TV. What happens when you can't win the argument? Well, just slander somebody. Just say say they're saying things they don't believe. They They don't say. They're not saying. But make sure it's inflammatory. And so what do you do? You say, well, this man, this man, Stephen, he is blaspheming the temple and he's blaspheming Torah. He's blaspheming the Bible. He's misinterpreting the Scripture. And so they drag him away in front of the Sanhedrin and they tell him and before all the Sanhedrin, they bring up these accusations and they tell him to defend himself. Now, remember who we're talking about. Stephen, number one in the list, (laughs) full of strength, full of power, full of grace, doing miracles. Wonderful man, spectacular, stellar man, face like an angel. He stands up and he begins to defend himself. And he demonstrates that God is not confined to a temple. 
Y'all know that, don't you? You know that when God called Abram, he traveled with Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees all the way to the land of Canaan and all the way through the land. God's not confined to a temple. He's not confined to a land. And then when, when Solomon, he goes and builds the temple, we call the temple of Solomon. Solomon says, even the heavens that cannot contain you, much less this building. He's not a God of the temple. So he demonstrates that. Then he demonstrates the fact that they are the ones who've been misinterpreting the Old Testament. And here's how he does it. He says, hey, you guys, you guys have fallen to a pattern. And your pattern is the pattern of our ancestors to reject the deliverer that God sends. And he gives some examples. He says, here's Joshua, I mean Joseph. And Joseph, who rejected Joseph? His brothers rejected him. His brothers are the one who hated him. We will not have this man to rule over us. They threw him in a pit. They sold him to an Ishmaelite caravan. And at the end, what happens? At the end, we have a Joseph standing at the end. And what does he do? He's, he's saving the whole world from a famine. His brothers as well. And he forgives his brothers for their sin. The, the deliverer is delivering the ones who first opposed him. The same thing happens with Moses. He's the deliverer. And if you read your Bibles carefully, remember... Those brothers opposed him and he had to flee for 40 years. And then he came back and he saves them out of Egypt. And this is what he's saying to them. You've missed it. You have killed the one God sent to deliver you from your sins. He also demonstrates they've misinterpreted the prophets in the Old Testament. If you go, remember, remember, as we read the law of God in Deuteronomy 17, Moses tells the people, someone like me is coming. A righteous one is coming, just like me, going to deliver his people from their sins. You have missed this. You've mistaken your understanding of the law and the prophets. They all point to this deliverer. You missed this. And then he says this to them, and this takes a lot of guts, right? You are a bunch of stiff-necked people. You're rebellious. You have uncircumcised hearts. And what happens to them? They're cut to the quick. What's that mean? I don't know about you. Have you ever... I'm going to be a little TMI here for a second. My daughter, she was a ballet person. And she saw me crying. I'm cutting my toenails. Nobody ever taught me how to cut my toenails. And so I'm in the quick. Every time I'm cutting my toenails, I'm in the quick, I'm crying. She said, Dad, what are you doing? Has anybody ever taught you how to cut your toenails? It hurts to be in the quick. These folks, they're in the quick. They're gnashing their teeth. They're hurting. And so you get to chapter 7, and Stephen, after he says all this, he looks up into heaven, and he sees God, the Father, and he sees Jesus Christ standing at his right hand, and then he has the gall to tell them what he sees. And then they take stones and they stone him to death. I'm going somewhere. Listen carefully. He says this, Lord Jesus, in front of all of them, receive my spirit. Then he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He falls asleep. All of it happens right at the feet of somebody. Saul of Tarsus. The coat watcher. The coat watcher, folks. The strictly trained, full of zeal coat watcher. Stephen is there and Saul is right there beside him. I think he's met his match. 
Nobody was like Saul of Tarsus. He's been trained by Pharisees, his parents. He's been trained by Gamaliel. He is advancing far beyond all those other guys. Maybe he's the second guy underneath Gamaliel. Nobody's superior to him. He has the right understanding of the law and the prophets. Saul is up against Stephen. And Stephen is superior to Saul. And he sees it. He sees something that he wants, folks. He sees a man talking about forgiveness. He sees a man who's seeing God. He sees a man who's seeing Christ. He sees He's on the other side of it. Don't get me wrong. But he sees this man who's so powerful and he wants to be like that. He wants to know the confidence. He wants to know the intimacy. He's up against a superior person. And what happens when we're up against a superior person? Don't we have an inferiority complex? I believe he's coveting. Coveting Stephen, even though he's on a different side of Stephen. I believe that he knows he's been defeated in the argument. What do you do when you're on the wrong side of something? He sees that he's misinterpreted the law and the prophets. Everything pointing to Jesus. He's on the wrong side of it. What do you do when you see that you're on the wrong side of things? Well, let me tell you what you ought to do. You ought to do what he says in Acts chapter 2. Men and brethren, what shall we do to be saved? That's not what he does. He should fall on his face before Stephen. He should say, how can I be saved? But you know what he does? He doubles down. Now, that's another term that's out there in the world today, isn't it? We're just going to double down. We see the facts right in front of our face and we're just going to double down. We're going to take the truth we know and we're going to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. We're going to move from being a coat watcher to a ravager of the church who grabs people, even women, by the throat and brings them to prison. Why? Why? Why does he move to that rage? Well, I want you to consider we're almost to the end. Consider this is a pattern that God has used many times to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know what your story is. <laughs> Doesn't God weave people into our lives that just irritate the fire out of us? <laughs> Stephen, I might have been somebody's irritation in the gym. I promise you I was somebody's irritation in the gym. Some superior person comes into your life and you think to yourself, um... How do you act that way? Why do you live that way? And somebody said, you say to them, well, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. And they'll let you talk a little bit. And you say, Jesus saved me from my sins. And you say, Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died on the cross for, for my sins because I'm a person who found out I, I can't save myself from my sins. And so you get to talk a little bit more and you say that all of this happened according to the law and the prophets. And you say a little bit more and you say, you know, I am justified by faith in Christ. He did all the good work and I'm relying on that. And I'm well pleasing to God because of what Jesus did for me. And by the way, let me finish up by saying this. Because of all of this, He's in my life by the power of His Spirit. And he's making me into a different person. And instead of saying, tell me all about this Savior, we say, don't tell me anymore. 
we're provoked. We double down. We're like Joseph's brothers, provoked. We don't want that man ruling over us. We're like Moses and we're provoked at him. We don't like anybody implying we're stiff-necked. We don't like anybody implying that we're on the wrong side of God. And up to this point, I've been A-OK until you walked into my life, Stephen. <laughs> I've been A-OK with adding up all the good versus all the bad, and i got a few more good than bad, and I'm going to be acceptable to God until you came along and started disrupting my life. And so in the presence of this person, we may like something about them. There's no doubt about it in the gym. I'll tell you this. There's many people who said, you live a different kind of life. People's minds begin to spin a million miles an hour. How can I turn from my people? How can I turn from all these people I'm walking with? How can they be so wrong? I'm going to have to turn away from my mom. I'm going to have to turn away from my dad. I'm going to have to turn away from all the folks that I've been walking with and go this way. Surely these guys can't be so wrong and surely you can't be right. And so what I will do is I will double down. I'll double down. I, when I was reading, Dr. Holcomb gave me Nabil, Nabil, Nabil Qureshi's book and every domino that fell, when he saw that Jesus was God, he doubled down and said, I won't believe that. Then when he saw that, G, that God is one God in three persons in a chemistry class of all places, he said, I'll double down and I won't believe that. I'll give myself further to my Islamic upbringing and I will not believe that. One domino after the next until he continues and finally he comes to break down and comes to Christ. You and I have two choices. We can remain enraged when we see a superior person who tells us about a superior, per, a better person than even him, a deliverer named Jesus Christ. We can stay enraged until the day we die. Or we can look to the superior deliverer that this person has told us about. This deliverer is Jesus Christ. And who is this person? He came to save people who opposed him at first. He came to save people who were covetous. He came to save people and die on the cross for people who are angry that other people have mercy. Angry that other people have things better than us. But dear Saul, there's plenty of mercy for you. Next time we're going to look at Saul. I want to see how he's called out of his covetousness and into Christ. But I will say this to you this morning. You can call on him now. And you can be found in Jesus Christ now. If you put your faith and trust in Him, you'll find yourself in Christ on the way to learning what it means to be content. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this opportunity to, uh, to open up Your Word. Thank You for these dear people and their listening ears and their attentiveness to this sermon. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we might find ourselves not doubling down, uh, Lord, not suppressing their truth and unrighteousness, that, but that we might be receiving what we know to be true as we've he heard it from your word. And that we might walk in Jesus Christ and learn, as Paul tells us in Philippians, that he learned contentment. Help us as we finish this time of worship to sing with all our might and receive your benediction and go home to worship you the rest of this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.